Chapter Eleven of Prejudice's First Series. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Prejudice's First Series by H. L. Mencken. Chapter Eleven. Six Members of the Institute. One. The Boudoir Balzac. The late Percival Pollard was, in my nonage, one of my enthusiasms, and later on, one of my friends. How as a youngster I used to lie in wait for the criterion every week and devour Pollard, Hunnaker, Meltzer, and Vance Thompson. That was in the glorious middle nineties, and savory pots were brewing. Scarcely a week went by without a new magazine of some unearthly tendons or other appearing on the stands. Scarcely a month failed to bring forth its new genius. Pollard was up to his hips in the movement. He had a hand for every debutante. He knew everything that was going on. Polyglot, Catholic, generous, alert, persuasive, forever oscillating between New York and Paris, London and Berlin, he probably covered a greater territory in the one art of letters than Hunnaker covered in all seven. He worked so hard as introducer of intellectual ambassadors, in fact, that he never had time to write his own books. One very brilliant volume, Masks and Minstrels of New Germany, adequately represents him. The rest of his criticism, clumsily dragged from the files of the Criterion and Town Topics, is thrown together ineptly in Their Day in Court. Death sneaked upon him from behind. He was gone before he could get his affairs in order. I shall never forget his funeral, no doubt a fit finish for a critic. Not one of the authors he had whooped and battled for was present. Not one, that is, save old Ambrose Bierce. Bierce came in an elegant plug-hat and told me some curious anecdotes on the way to the crematory, chiefly of morgues, dissecting-rooms, and lonely churchyards. He was the most gruesome of men. A week later, on a dark, sleety Christmas morning, I returned to the crematory, got the ashes, and shipped them west. Pollard awaits the second coming of his Redeemer in Iowa, hard by the birthplace of Professor Dr. Stuart P. Sherman. Well, let us not repine. Hunnaker lives in Flatbush and was born in Philadelphia. Cabell is a citizen of Richmond, Virginia. Willis Siebert Cather was once one of the editors of McClure's magazine. Dreiser, before his enunciation, edited dime novels for Street and Smith, and will be attended by a Methodist friar, I dare say, on the gallows. Pollard, as I say, was a man I respected. He knew a great deal. Half English, half German, and wholly cosmopolitan, he brought valuable knowledges and enthusiasms to the developing American literature of his time. Moreover, I had affection for him as well as respect, for he was a capital companion at the Beertisch and was never too busy to waste a lecture on my lone ear, say on Otto Julius Beerbaum, one of his friends, or Anatoly France, or the technic of the novel, or the scoundrelism of publishers. It thus pains me to violate his tomb, but let his shade forgive me as it hopes to be forgiven. For it was Pollard, I believe, who set going the doctrine that Robert W. Chambers is a man of talent. A bit too commercial, perhaps, but still fundamentally a man of talent. You will find it argued at length in their day in court. There Pollard called the role of the promising young men of the time circa 1908. They were Winston Churchill, David Graham Phillips, and Chambers. Alas for all the prophets and their prognostications! 
Phillips, with occasional reversions to honest work, devoted most of his later days to sensational serials for the Trainboy magazines, and when he died his desk turned out to be full of them, and they kept dribbling along for three or four years. Churchill, seduced by the uplift, has become an evangelist and a bore, a worse case even than that of H. G. Wells. And Chambers? Let the New York Times answer. Here, in all sobriety, is its description of the heroine of the moonlit way, one of his latest pieces. She is a lovely and fascinating dancer who before the war held the attention of all Europe and incited a great many men who had nothing better to do to fall in love with her. She bursts upon the astonished gaze of several of the important characters of the story when she dashes into the ballroom of the German embassy, standing upon a bridled ostrich, which she compels to dance and go through its paces at her command. She is dressed, Mr. Chambers assured us, in nothing but the skin of her virtuous youth, modified slightly by a yashmak and a zone of blue jewels about her hips and waist. The italics are mine. I wonder what poor Pollard would think of it. He saw the shoddiness in Chambers, the leaning toward profitable pot-boiling, but he saw to a fundamental earnestness and a high degree of skill. What has become of these things? Are they visible even as ghosts in the preposterous serials that engod the magazines of Mr. Hurst, and then load the department stores as books? Were they, in fact, ever there at all? Did Pollard observe them, or did he merely imagine them? I am inclined to think that he merely imagined him, that his delight in what he described as many admirable tricks led him into a fatuity that he now has an eternity to regret. Chambers grows sillier and sillier, emptier and emptier, worse and worse. But was he ever more than a fifth-rater? I doubt it. Let us go back half a dozen years to the days before the war forced the pot-boiler down into utter imbecility. I choose at random the gay rebellion. Here is a specimen of the dialogue. It startled me. How did I know what it might have been? It might have been a bear. Or a cow. You talk, said Sayer angrily, like William Dean Howells. Haven't you any romance in you? Not what you call romance. Pass the flapjacks. Sayer passed them. My attention, he said, instantly became riveted upon the bushes. I strove to pierce them with a piercing glance. Suddenly. Sure. Suddenly always comes next. Suddenly the leaves were stealthily parted, and a naked savage in full war-paint. Naked nothing, a young girl in a perfectly fitting gown stepped noiselessly out. Out of what, you gink? The bushes, damn it, she looked at me. I gazed at her. Somehow, in plainer terms, she gave you the eye. What? That's a particularly coarse observation. Then tell it your own way. I will. The sunlight fell softly upon the trees of the ancient wood. Wouldn't that bark you? And so on and so on for page after page. Can you imagine more idiotic stuff? Pierce and piercing, you gink, she gave you the eye. Wouldn't that bark you? One is reminded of horrible things, the repartees of gas-house comedians in vaudeville, the whimsical editorials in life, the forbidding gooleries of Irvin Cobb among jokes pale and clammy in death. But let us, you may say, go back a bit further, back to the days of the chapbook. There was then, perhaps, a far different Chambers, a fellow of sound talent and artistic self-respect, well deserving the confidence and encouragement of Pollard. Was there indeed? 
If you think so, go read The King in Yellow, circa 1895, if you can. I myself, full of hope, have tried it. In it I have found drivel almost as dull as that, say, in Ailsa Page. 2. A Stranger on Parnassus the case of Hamlin Garland belongs to pathos in the grand manner, as you will discover on reading his autobiography, A Son of the Middle Border. What ails him is a vision of beauty, a seductive strain of body music over the hills. He is a sort of male Mary MacLean, but without either Mary's capacity for picturesque blasphemy or her skill at plain English. The vision in his youth tore him from his prairie plough and set him to clawing the anthills at the foot of Parnassus. He became an elocutionist, what in modern times would be called a Chautauquan. He aspired to write for the Atlantic Monthly. He fell under the spell of the Boston Illuminados of 1885, which is as if one were to take fire from a June bug. Finally, after embracing the single tax, he achieved a couple of depressing storybooks, earnest, honest, and full of indignation. American criticism, which always mistakes a poignant document for aesthetic form and organization, greeted these moral volumes as works of art, and so Garland found himself an accepted artist and has made shift to be an artist ever since. No more grotesque miscasting of a diligent and worthy man is recorded in profane history. He has no more feeling for the intrinsic dignity of beauty, no more comprehension of it as a thing in itself than a policeman. He is, and always has been, a moralist endeavoring ineptly to translate his messianic passion into aesthetic terms, and always failing. A Son of the Middle Border, undoubtedly the best of all his books, projects his failure brilliantly. It is in substance a document of considerable value, a naive and often highly illuminating contribution to the history of the American peasantry. It is in form a thoroughly third-rate piece of writing, amateurish, flat, banal, repellent. Garland gets facts into it. He gets the relentless sincerity of the rustic Puritan. He gets a sort of evangelical passion. But he doesn't get any charm. He doesn't get any beauty. In such a career as in such a book there is something profoundly pathetic. One follows the progress of the man with a constant sense that he is steering by faulty compasses, that fate is leading him into paths too steep and rocky, nay, too dark and lovely for him. An awareness of beauty is there, and a wistful desire to embrace it. But the confident gusto of the artist is always lacking. What one encounters in its place is the enthusiasm of the pedagogue, the desire to yank the world up to the soaring Methodist level, the hot yearning to displace old ideas with new ideas, and usually much worse ideas. For example, the single tax and spook chasing. The natural goal of the man was the evangelical stump. He was led astray when those Boston Brahmins of the last generation, enchanted by his sophomoric platitudes about Shakespeare, set him up as a critic of the arts, and then as an imaginative artist. He should have gone back to the Saleratus belt, taken to the Chautauquas, preached his foreordained perunas, got himself into Congress, and so helped to save the Republic from the demons that beset it. What a gladiator he would have made against the plunderbund, the white slave traffic, the rum demon, the Kaiser. What a rival to the Honorable Claude Kitchen, the Reverend Dr. Newell Dwight Hillis. His worst work, I dare say, is in some of his fiction, for example in The Forester's Daughter. But my own favorite among his books is The Shadow World, a record of his communings with the gaseous precipitates of the departed. 
He takes great pains at the start to assure us that he is a man of alert intelligence and without prejudices or superstitions. He has no patience, it appears, with those idiots who swallow the buffooneries of spiritualist mediums too greedily. For him the scientific method, the method which examines all evidence cynically and keeps on doubting until the accumulated proof, piled mountain high, sweeps down in an overwhelming avalanche. Thus he proceeds to the haunted chamber and begins his dalliance with the banshees. They touch him with clammy spectral hands, they ring music for him out of locked pianos, they throw heavy tables about the room, they give him messages from the golden shore and make him the butt of their coarse transcendental humor. Through it all he sits tightly and solemnly, his mind open and his verdict up his sleeve. He is belligerently agnostic and calls attention to it proudly. Then in the end he gives himself away. One of his fellow scientists, more frankly credulous, expresses the belief that real scientists will soon prove the existence of spooks. I hope they will, says the agnostic Mr. Garland. Well, let us not laugh. The believing mind is a curious thing. It must absorb its endless rations of balderdash or perish. A son of the middle border is less amusing, but a good deal more respectable. It is an honest book. There is some bragging in it, of course, but not too much. It tells an interesting story. It radiates hard effort and earnest purpose. But what a devastating exposure of a member of the American Academy of Arts and Letters. 3. A Merchant of Mush Henry Sidnor Harrison is thoroughly American to this extent, that his work is a bad imitation of something English. Find me a second-rate American in any of the arts, and I'll find you his master and prototype among third, fourth, or fifth-rate Englishmen. In the present case the model is obviously W. J. Locke, but between master and disciple there is a great gap. Locke at his high points is a man of very palpable merit. He has humor. He has ingenuity. He has a keen eye for the pathos that so often lies in the absurd. I can discover no sign of any of these things in Harrison's 100,000-word Christmas cards. They are simply sentimental bosh, huge gumdrops for fat women to snuffle over. Locke's grotesque and often extremely amusing characters are missing. In place of them there are the heroic cripples, silent lovers, maudlin war veterans, and angelic grandams of the old-time Sunday school books. The people of V.V.'s eyes are preposterous, and the thesis is too silly to be stated in plain words. No sane person would believe it if it were put into an affidavit. Queed is simply Locke, diluted with vast drafts from Laddie and Pollyanna. Queed himself, long before the end, becomes a marionette without a toe on the ground. His Charlotte is incredible from the start. Angela's business touches the bottom of the tear-jug. It would be impossible to imagine a more vapid story. Harrison, in fact, grows more mawkish book by book. He is touched, I should say, by the delusion that he has a mission to make life sweeter, to preach the finer things, to radiate gladness. What? More gladness? Another volt or two and all civilized adults will join the Italians and Yugoslavs in their headlong Hegira. A few more amperes and the land will be abandoned to the Jews the ex-Confederates, and the Bolsheviki. 4. The Last of the Victorians If William Allen White lives as long as Tennyson and does not reform, our grandchildren will see the Victorian era gasping out its last breath in 1951. And 83 is no great age in Kansas where sin is unknown. 
It may be, in fact, 1960 or even 1970 before the world hears the last of honest poverty, chaste affection, and manly tears. For so long as White holds a pen, these ancient sweets will be on sale at the department store book counters, and they will grow sweeter and sweeter, I dare say, as he works them over and over. In his very first book of fiction there was a flavor of chewing gum and marshmallows. In a certain rich man the intelligent palate detected saccharin. In the heart of a fool, his latest, the thing is carried a step further. If you are a forward looker and a right thinker, if you believe that God is in the heaven and all is for the best, if you yearn to uplift and like to sob, then the volume will probably affect you in the incomparable phrase of Clayton Hamilton, like the music of a million Easter lilies leaping from the grave and laughing with the silver singing. But if you are a carnal fellow, as I am, with a stomach ruined by alcohol, it will gag you. When I say that White is a Victorian, I do not allude, of course, to the Victorianism of Thackeray and Tennyson, but to that of Felicia Hemans, of Samuel Smiles, and of Dickens at his most maudlin. Perhaps an even closer relative is to be found in the Duchess. White, like the Duchess, is absolutely humorless, and when he begins laying on the mayonnaise, absolutely shameless. I dare say the same sort of reader admires both. The high school girl, first seized by amorous tremors, the obese multipara in her greasy kimono, the remote and weepful farm wife. But here a doubt intrudes itself. Is it possible to imagine a woman sentimental enough to survive in the heart of a fool? I am constrained to question it. In women, once they get beyond adolescence, there is always a saving touch of irony. The life they lead infallibly makes cynics of them, though sometimes they don't know it. Observe the books they write, chiefly sardonic stuff with heroes who are fools. Even their glad books, enormously successful among other women, stop far short of the sentimentality put between covers by men. For example, the aforesaid Harrison, Harold Bell Wright, and the present White. Nay, it is the male sex that snuffles most and is easiest touched, particularly in America. The American man is forever falling a victim to his tender feelings. It was by that route that the collectors for the YMCA reached him. It is thus that he is bagged incessantly by political tear-squeezers. It is precisely his softness that makes him the slave of his womenfolk. What White gives him is exactly the sort of mush that is on tap in the Chautauquas. In the heart of a fool, like a certain rich man, is aimed deliberately and with the utmost accuracy at the delicate gizzard of the small-town yokel, the small-town yokel male, the horrible end-product of fifty years of Christian endeavor, the little red schoolhouse, and the direct primary. The white formula is simple to the verge of austerity. It is in essence no more than a dramatization of all the current political and sociological rumble-bumble by Roosevelt out of Coxey's army, with music by the choir of the First Methodist Church. On the one side are the hell-hounds of plutocracy, the money-demons, the plunder-bund, and their attendant bosses, strike-breakers, seducers, Nietzscheans, free-lovers, atheists, and corrupt journalists. On the other side are the great masses of the plain people and their attendant uplifters, good Samaritans, honest working men, faithful husbands, inspired dreamers, and tin-horn messiahs. These two armies join battle, the bad against the good, and for five hundred pages or more the good get all the worst of it. Their jobs are taken away from them, their votes are bartered, their mortgages are foreclosed, their women are debauched, their savings are looted, their poor orphans are turned out to starve. A sad business, surely. 
One wallows in almost unendurable emotions. The tears gush. It is as affecting as a movie. Even the prose rises to a sort of gospel tent chant like that of a Baptist Savonarola, with every second sentence beginning with and, but, or for. But we are already near the end and no escape is in sight. Can it be that White is stumped like Mark Twain in his medieval romance? That virtue will succumb to the interests? Do not fear. In the third from the last chapter, Hen Jackson, the stagehand, returns from the Dutchman's at the corner and throws on a rose spotlight and then an amber and then a violet and then a blue. One by one the rays of hope began to shoot across the stage. Dr. Hamilton's Easter lilies leap from their tomb, the dramatis personae, all save the local J. Pierpont Morgan, begin laughing with the silver singing, and as the curtain falls the whole scene is bathed in luminiferous ether, and the professor breaks into onward Christian soldiers on the cabinet organ, and there is a happy comfortable sobbing and an upward rolling of eyes and a vast blowing of noses. In brief, the finish of a Chautauqua lecture on the grand future of America or the glory of service. In brief, slobber. It would be difficult to imagine more saccharine writing or a more mawkish and preposterous point of view. Life as White sees it is a purely moral phenomenon like living pictures by the Epworth League. The virtuous are the downtrodden, the up and doing are all scoundrels. It pays to be poor and pious. Ambition is a serpent. One honest night of Pythias is worth ten thousand Rockefellers. The pastor is always right. So is the ladies' home journal. The impulse that leads a young yokel of, say, twenty-two to seek marriage with a poor working girl of, say, eighteen, is the most elevating, noble, honorable, and godlike impulse native to the human consciousness. Not the slightest sign of an apprehension of life is the gaudiest and most gorgeous of spectacles. Not a trace of healthy delight in the eternal struggle for existence. Not the faintest suggestion of Dreiser's great gusto or of Conrad's penetrating irony. Not even in the massive fact of death itself. And, like all the other Victorians, this one from the Kansas Steps is given to wholesale massacres. Does he see anything mysterious, staggering, awful, inexplicable, but only an excuse for a sentimental orgy. Alas, what would you? It is ghastly drivel, to be sure, but isn't it, after all, thoroughly American? I have an uneasy suspicion that it is, that in the heart of a fool is at bottom a vastly more American book than anything that James Branch Cabell has done, or Vincent O'Sullivan, or Edith Wharton, or even Howells. It springs from the heart of the land. It is the aesthetic echo of thousands of movements, of hundreds of thousands of sentimental crusades, of millions of ecstatic gospel meetings. This is what the authentic American public, unpolluted by intelligence, wants. And this is one of the reasons why the English sniff whenever they look our way. But has White no merit? He has. He is an honest and a respectable man. He is a patriot. He trusts God. He venerates what is left of the Constitution. He once wrote a capital editorial, What's the Matter with Kansas? He has the knack, when his tears are turned off, of writing a clear and graceful English. 5. A Bad Novelist As I have said, it is not the artistic merit and dignity of a novel, but often simply its content as document that makes for its success in the United States. The criterion of truth applied to it is not the criterion of an artist, but that of a newspaper editorial writer. 
the question is not is it in accord with the profoundest impulses and motives of humanity but is it in accord with the current pishposh this accounts for the huge popularity of such confections as upton sinclair's the jungle and blasco ibanez's the four horsemen of the apocalypse neither had much value as a work of art at all events neither was perceptibly superior to many contemporary novels that made no stir at all but each had the advantage of reinforcing an emotion already aroused of falling into step with the procession of the moment had there been no fever of muckraking and trust-busting in nineteen o six the jungle would have died the death in the columns of the appeal to reason unheard of by the populace in general and had the united states been engaged against france instead of for france in nineteen eighteen there would have been no argument in the literary weeklies that blasco was a novelist of the first rank and his story a masterpiece comparable to germinal sinclair was made by the jungle and has been trying his hardest to unmake himself ever since another of the same sort is ernest poole author of the harbor the harbor judged by any intelligible aesthetic standard was a bad novel its transactions were forced and unconvincing its central character was shadowy and often incomprehensible the manner of its writing was quite without distinction but it happened to be printed at a time when the chief ideas in it had a great deal of popularity when its vague grappling with insoluble sociological problems was the sport of all the weeklies and of half the more sober newspapers when a nebulous highfalutin bolshevism was in the air and so it excited interest and took on an aspect of profundity that its discussion of those problems was superficial that it said nothing new and got nowhere all this was not an influence against its success but an influence in favor of its success for the sort of mind that fed upon the nebulous professor-made politics and sociology of nineteen fifteen was the sort of mind that is chronically avid of half-truths and is chronically suspicious of forthright thinking this has been demonstrated since that time by its easy volta face and the presence of emotion the very ideas that Poole's vapid hero toyed with in 1915 to the delight of the novel-reading intelligentsia would have damned the book as a pamphlet for the IWW, or even perhaps as German propaganda three years later. But meanwhile it had been forgotten, as novels are always forgotten, and all that remained of it was a general impression that Poole, in some way or other, was a superior fellow and to be treated with respect. His subsequent books have tried that theory severely. The family was grounded upon one of the elemental tragedies which serve a novelist most safely. The dismay of an aging man as his children drift away from him. Here was a subject full of poignant drama, and what is more, drama simple enough to develop itself without making any great demand upon the invention. Poole burdened it with too much background, and then killed it altogether by making his characters wooden. It began with a high air. It creaked and wobbled at the close. The catastrophe was quite without effect his second wife dropped several stories lower it turned out on inspection to be no more than a moral tale feeble wishy-washy and irritating everything in it about the corrupting effects of money lust and display about the swinishness of cabaret society in new york about the american male's absurd slavery to his women had been said before by such gifted balzacs as robert w chambers and owen johnson and what is more far better said the writing, in fact, exactly matched the theme. It was labored, artificial, dull. In the whole volume there was not a single original phrase. Once it was put down, not a scene remained in the memory or a character. It was a cheap, a hollow, and in places almost an idiotic book. 
At the time I write, this is the whole product of Poole as novelist. Three novels. Bad. Worse. Worst. 6. A Broadway Brandis. I have hitherto, in discussing White de Kansas, presented a fragile dahlia from the rhetorical garden of Clayton Hamilton, M.A., Columbia. I now present the whole passage. Whenever, in a world-historic war, the sight of righteousness has triumphed, a great overflowing of art has followed soon upon the fact of victory. The noblest instincts of mankind, aroused in perilous moments fraught with intimations of mortality, have surged and soared, beneath the sunshine of a subsequent and dear-bought peace, into an immeasurable empyrean of heroic eloquence. Whenever right has circumvented might, art has sprung alive into the world and with the music of a million Easter lilies leaping from the grave and laughing with a silver singing. With the highest respect for a magister artium, a pedagogue of Columbia University, a lecturer in Miss Spence's school and the classic school for girls, and a vice-president of the National Institute of Arts and Letters. Boo! End of chapter 11. Recording by Philip Gould.